When Tom Landry, the great coach of the Dallas Cowboys, most of us are Dallas fans here, aren't we? I know that Debbie's family would be. <laughs> when he finished his coaching career in 1989, Tom Landry was the third winning, no, that's another word, that's like the other word I had to say, third winningest coach in NFL history at the time. He had taken the Cowboys to a record five Super Bowls with two wins. And Tom Landry also served on the board of directors for Dallas Theological Seminary. He was a humble man. He was a man of quiet strength and dignity. And when he chose to say something, an entire room would stop and lean in to hear what he had to say. Once during a breakfast with a group of men, someone asked Coach Landry how he was able to take a group of individuals and forge them into a team that could win, something he had managed to do for 29 years. The table grew silent as he paused for a moment, and then he said, my job is to get men to do what they don't want to do so that they can achieve what they've always wanted to achieve. That's something, th the, something that those men wanted to achieve was win the Super Bowl. But they didn't want to do was the work, the grueling work that it would take to get them there. Achieving anything requires discipline, determined, deliberate, definable actions with a clear goal in mind. From our study in the book of Joshua and what it means to win and, and have victory in the Christian life, we've seen that victory in the Christian life means two things primarily. First of all, it means defeating the enemy, defeating the world, the flesh, and the devil in our Christian life. And then secondly, we have seen that victory means entering into all that God has for us in Christ Jesus. So this morning, I want us to see the ultimate goal. What's the prize? I want to see that thing that motivates us to be determined and deliberate in our Christian lives so that we might gain what the Apostle Paul calls the prize. The emphasis this morning is not so much on how we run, even though we'll talk about some of that, how we should live our Christian life in order to experience victory. The emphasis is going to be on the prize itself. What is it that God sets before us as we run the race of the Christian life that causes us to run with endurance when we want to give up? That causes us to run in such a way that we will win? What is it that causes us to run the Christian life with discipline and self-control, not cutting corners or, or doing something else? What is it, as Paul put it, that would cause us to make our bodies our slaves so that we would not get disqualified? What would make us do that which we don't want to do in order that we might achieve in the Christian life what God has for us as the prize? When we get to the end of this life and we stand before Jesus Christ, as we all will do, and receive the prize that Jesus has for each one of us, what is it about that prize that kept us from turning to the right, kept us from turning to the left, that kept us out of the ditches, that kept us on track in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the difficulties and the snares of the devil. So please turn once again to Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9 at verse 24. To help us understand the Christian life and what Paul's talking about is the prize, he uses the analogy of running a race. Verse 24, he says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, 
but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now, when the Apostle Paul used this analogy of running a race, those who read his letter, it was written to the Corinthians, knew exactly what he was referring to. It would be much the same way today if Paul wrote a letter to us and referred to the Super Bowl. At least most of us would have a general idea or even a very strong idea of what that means to us, what, at least what Paul was talking about. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians about running a race, he referred to something that was an integral, central part of Corinthian society and culture at the time. The Greeks had two great athletic festivals. Number one, we know, the Olympics. There was the Olympics, and then the other one was the Ithmian Games. Isthmian. I don't even know if I can say that this morning. Isthmian Games. Because Corinth was a port city that was located on the isthmus between, the, on this narrow strip of land between the Peloponnesus, they call it, and the rest of the Greek mainline, mainland. It was a main city on the isthmus. And so the Corinthians, it was like Paul was saying, to, or they could say, sure, there's the Olympic Games. They have those over on Athens. But really, every Super Bowl is held in Corinth. They always had the games, and they held the games twice for every one Olympics. The Isthmian Games in their city were the year before the Olympics and the year after the Olympics. And so in Greek culture, this development of the body was held in high regard, and it was just as important as developing their, their mind. So especially in a place like Corinth, the place of the games, Children went through vigorous training even at a young age. Before a child would start his studies in the morning, or her studies, it was true for both boys and girls, they would first go out and swim in the cold river. So they'd swim in the cold river, then they would go through these exercises vigorously, each one age-specific and according to their age and those kind of things. And, uh, and part of the reason for that is, in their society, everybody... Growing up and then for the rest of their life, for the most part, was going to do physical labor. There was no such thing as a desk job. No matter what you did, you're loading carts, unloading carts, working in the fields, whatever you're doing, unless you were some guy that worked for the government or something, you had to work. And you had to work hard and it had to be, be physical. The Corinthians' goal for their children, for their education, what was what it was called noble minds and beautiful bodies. Noble minds and beautiful bodies. The children, as they grew older, they, they competed in games as they continued their athletic training, and it even became more of a part in their culture than it is in ours today. If you can imagine sports and everything that plays in our culture, it was even more so in the Corinthian culture. As a child grew up, many of them would train and compete in various games. In Corinth, they had a saying that expressed the philosophy of their life, what they lived for. They said, bread and games. They, they just lived to eat during the day and go to the games at night. That, that's not a whole lot different today on Super Bowl Sunday, is it? And then in order to compete and qualify for the Ithmian Games, the athletes had to prove riga, rigorous, I had trouble with that word last week, too. this is going to be one of those days. They had to go through all this hard training for 10 months before the games. And then the last month just previous to the games in Corinth, they had to go live in Corinth, and then they had supervised workouts every day in the gymnasium and on the athletic fields. The race, though, was the major attraction in the games. 
Now, there were other events in the games. There was the chariot races. I think I would like that one. There was what they called the pancration, which was a mixture of boxing and wrestling, kind of like mixed martial arts today. Then there was wrestling. There was boxing, which the Apostle Paul alludes to several times as well. Then there were musical and poetical contests, uh, of which women also participated in those. But the race was the major attraction by which a contestant could win that most coveted prize, the wreath. Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Here we see the prize. Here we see their motivation. Why do these athletes train so vigorously? Why did they put their bodies through all of that? They wanted to win the wreath. The wreath was a pine wreath that was woven in such a way, probably seen pictures, especially in Roman paintings and stuff. They wore the, the wreath was, was woven and then they wore it on their head. It was made of pine. In the Greek, the word is stephanos. Stephanos means wreath. If your name is Stephen, then that's what your name means, wreath or crown. In fact, we will see that it's translated in Scripture as crown in the, the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. But in this case, it was a pine wreath. We have Christmas wreaths that aren't a whole lot different than that. And, of course, it's perishable. So it raises the question again. It's a perishable wreath. It's not going to last very long. Why train your whole life? Why put your body through that painstaking stuff for 10 months before the games and then that month of intensity right before the games so you get a pine wreath that will perish? You know, once in a while, because there's nothing much else on TV on, uh, in the summer, I, I find myself watching American Ninja Warrior. Anybody else watch that? Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the season... Out of all these thousands of guys and girls who train and compete, there's only one winner. And that winner every year is the person who makes it the farthest through all these obstacle courses. But no American has yet attained to the top, top spot yet. Now some of these guys, they quit their jobs. They train for a full year, year after year, hoping to do better next year. They put their their family security at risk at times in order to win. And so the wife and the kids are really screaming for them to win on the sideline. And each year there's only one winner. That's the one who goes the farthest. But the thing that drives me nuts that even after seven seasons now, no American has finished the entire course. There are phases and courses that increasingly get more difficult and challenging. And we watch these warriors drop off one at a time, fall in the water, humiliated, and uh, so far, no American ascended to the top of the course that's called Mount Midoriyama or something like that. Why do they do such a thing? They do it for the prize. In the Ithmian games, the pine wreath represented fame. It represented a claim by the cheering crowd. It represented the life of a hero. Winners were immortalized just as they are today. But that, immortal or that immortality just as was just as mortal as the wreath itself and lasted a little longer. Both were perishable. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. Paul is exhorting the Corinthians 
the Christians at Corinth to run the race of the Christian life in such a way that they're going to receive an imperishable crown. That is our motivation to train, what Paul called in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7, to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. The word discipline is, is the Greek word gymnazo. We get the word gymnasium. Go to the gymnasium of your soul for godliness. Run in such a way that you'll receive the imperishable Stephanos. So based on this motivation, Paul now tells us how he runs the race. He uses himself as an example of how he runs the race of the Christian life. Verse 26, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul says he runs a race in such a way, the Christian life, so as he's not going to be disqualified. Now, what would disqualify a runner in, the, in a race? It's the opposite of what Paul calls here self-control. We would say you get disqualified for what? Cheating, for cutting corners, for dropping out completely. The runner is huffing and puffing, and he's coming around that corner, and he looks across the infield, and there's the finish line right over there. I don't have to go all the way around there and follow all those guys around there. I'm just going to cut across... And, and I'm going to take a shortcut, and I'm going to run across the infield, but when he gets there, he finds out he's disqualified. Some will cheat in order to win a race. The blood-doping scandals of bike racing are, are just scandalous. There's no other way to put it. The man who for years was considered the best biker in the world because he won seven consecutive Tour de France races, discovered he cheated in every race he competed in. Now, if the Apostle Paul, of all people, was concerned about being disqualified himself, I think it's something we need to take very seriously as well. Paul did not want to spend his life preaching to others, presenting Christ to others, teaching others just to get to the end of the race and when he stood before his Savior, Jesus Christ, Jesus say, you disqualified yourself way back there, son. You didn't make it. Lots of Christians start out their Christian life with great devotion. They start out with great spiritual energy. They get into God's word and they train their minds and their hearts. They, they fellowship, as it were, as they work out with one another. But after a while, they start to tire out spiritually. They begin to break training before very long, they're disqualified and they find out they're, they're not an effective witness. Nobody listens to them. They don't have what it takes because they're unwilling to pay the price. Or they give up completely. In 1976, a young man by the name of Fred Dixon was favored to win the decathlon at the Montreal Olympics. Now, those of you who know about the Olympics, the decathlon is comprised of 10 different events. You got the javelin, you got the 100 meter dash, and you know, just all kinds of stuff. That, uh, in other words, with these 10 events, the winner of the decathlon is declared the greatest athlete in the world. The world's greatest athlete. Among all the other athletes at the Olympics, he's the greatest. And Fred Dixon went to the Montreal Olympics with high hopes. He was rated fairly high. And uh, he entered the competition and thought he might be running for a title. At least he might finish in one of the medals. But it didn't go the way that he had hoped or planned. Fred ran the first event 
and he didn't do very well. Thought, well, maybe I'm just not feeling very good. And then he ran the second and didn't do any better. He competed in the next event and did even more poorly. When he finally finished the fifth event at the end of that first day, he realized he had no chance of winning at all. So he quit. But that night, when he was alone in his thoughts, he got to thinking about the implications of what he had done. In the record books, there'd be a DNF beside his name. Did not finish. DNF, did not finish. And all he could think about was that one day that his children or his grandchildren say, Dad, you were in the Olympics? Yeah, let's look up your stuff. <laughs> and they go to the record books and there's a big DNF next to his name. Did not finish. So the next day he got up early in the morning and he went to the Olympic officials and he begged and begged them to let him back in. Finally they relented and they let him finish the courses. Didn't do very well, didn't finish very well, but the very next year, on account of his renewed commitment, he was rated the number one decathlete in the world in just one year after that. Lots of things want to make us quit. Lots of things want to make us cut corners. There's the world, the flesh, everyday living. There's personal interest. Even sports and sporting events can get in the way of our running the race of the Christian life, get in the way of our training for godliness. And often simple laziness, what did the, the donkey call that? Lays or something like that? I think he made up that word. <laughs> you know, there's lots, even good things can interfere with the best things. Even good things can keep us out of what Chuck Swindoll calls the gymnasium of the soul. The gymnasium of the soul. Busyness is not a Christian virtue. Never has been, never will, especially if it interferes with what? is really important. So what is it? What is that prize that motivates us to do those things that we don't want to do, to discipline ourselves in order to achieve what we want to achieve? That is godliness. That is the prize that God has for us. Now in the Bible, we find several different word pictures and analogies that describe the prize or our heavenly awards, the prize that we we reach for. We could call it Christ-likeness. We could call it godliness. There's all kinds of stuff. What is that that we are reaching for? And I just want us to see one of those analogies this, this morning. Because in this one picture, we find very powerful motivation. These are the things that will get your motor going in the Christian life. And it's all tied up. We've already looked at that. And that whole idea of the wreath, the crown, the Stephanos. In the Bible, our heavenly rewards, our prizes, are often referred to as crowns. And there's five different heavenly crowns or rewards that are mentioned in the Bible. So I want to start out with the one that we've already seen here in 1 Corinthians. The imperishable crown. Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. With the analogy of the race, Paul said that in the Ithmian games, only one person wins the crown. One person wins the race. It's only for one person, but when we turn that around and, and apply it to our own Christian life, this is what makes this crown so cool. The imperishable crown that you will win on that day when you stand before Jesus Christ, that crown is just for you. 
That's not for anybody else. This is your crown. No one else can win your particular crown. So what is your own personal imperishable crown? Turn back to the third chapter of 1 Corinthians for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 at, at verse 11. Paul is talking about the day when each one of us are going to stand before Jesus Christ at what's called the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. And he says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation, that is, builds on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now I want you to hang in there for, with me for a minute because we're going to do a little word study here. I want you to see that word in verse 13, the word that's translated test. Four-letter word, test, T-E-S-T. In the Greek, that word is dokamos, but th this is the verb form, dokamizo, but the noun is dokamos. Dokumos referred to that refining process in the ancient world where gold and other precious metals were purified by using fire. The gold or the precious metal would be heated and boiled until the dross, the scum, the impurities would rise to the surface. Then they would skim off that dross, those impurities, and when the metal or the gold had hardened, they would stamp Docimus, the approval seal. It's pure, it's valuable, it's tested, it's been approved by fire. And in the same basic sense, when we, each one of us, stand before Jesus Christ, God is going to put fire to everything we did in life. Everything. And anything that we did on our own strength, in our own resources, according to the flesh, as the Bible calls it, our own abilities, our own ambitions, all that's going to burn up. That's the dross. It gets skimmed away. No matter how good it looks, no matter how good it seemed at the time, it's going to burn up because it was done in the flesh. It was nothing more than wood, hay, or straw. It didn't pass the test. So it was what they called adokamos. They'd put a little letter A in front of dokamos, and that negated it. Adokamos means unapproved. It didn't have the good housekeeping seal of approval of any kind on that. It was adokamos. Adokamos, unapproved. Wood, hay, stubble. Now, anything that we do in God's strength and his power, anything that the Holy Spirit does in us and through us is dokamos, approved. It passes the test of fire because it's of the Spirit of God. Why? Because... Any work that we do in and through the Holy Spirit, when tested, will prove to be of God. It's going to be gold. It's going to be silver. It's going to be precious stones. And for these works, God does it all. He gets all the credit, all the glory, but we get the prize. He gives us the imperishable crown. 
we receive the imperishable crown. That is why we run the race to win. Now remember that Paul had said that he didn't want to run the race his whole life, preaching to others, and then find out that he was disqualified. Remember that word disqualified? The word translated disqualified in Paul's letter in chapter 9 is adakamas. He didn't want to get to the end of the race and find out he's adakamas. He's disqualified, tested by fire, unimproved. That is what Paul did not want to see happen. He did not want to stand before Jesus Christ, have his life tested, and be adakamas, disqualified. No reward, no crowns. Those things that we do in our own strength and our own resources, our own ideas, our own flesh, these are the things that disqualify us in the race, and they burn up when they are tested. But those things that God does in and through you by his Holy Spirit for his glory, those are the things that will comprise your imperishable crown. Another crown or reward mentioned in Scripture is the crown of righteousness. You don't need to turn to it, but Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. And uh, Paul is on his last legs here, literally. He's in prison. He's dying. He's sick. These are his final words to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. And Paul says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. In the future there's the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Appearing. The crown of righteousness is the reward that we receive on account of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We inherit this crown through the righteousness of Christ. It is what he gives to us, but only because of his righteousness. Now this crown or reward comes to us by what has often been called the great exchange. The great exchange. When Jesus died on the cross... All your iniquity iniquity was laid on him. Every sin you ever committed or ever will commit, all laid on him. Every mistake that wasn't quite right was laid on him. He took your sins. He took the penalty for your sins upon himself. He became sin on our behalf. He took it all upon himself. Then when you receive Jesus Christ by faith, all his righteousness is laid upon you. You become the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. You receive what's called the white robe of righteousness. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He takes all our sin, he gives us all his righteousness. I like that word great exchange because it can't get any greater than that. He takes all your sins, clothes you in his, in his righteousness. Now this last week there's been quite a flap on some of the news because uh, the two sons of a man came home from school or from something one day, and they had two awards that were called, two trophies that were called participation awards. And the father sent him back because he says, my kids have to earn their rewards or, or whatever. I'm not going to get into the political ramifications of that. And everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people have been talking about this last week, that if you really win something, you ought to win something. But the crown of righteousness really is the showing up award. <laughs> It is the participation award. <clears throat> because one day, 
If you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to stand before him clothed in his righteousness, the white robe of his righteousness. And just because you are wearing the white robe of his righteousness, he's going to say, I also have a crown that matches that outfit, (laughs) that goes along with that. I'm going to give you the crown of righteousness that matches your white robe of righteousness in Christ. And here again, the reward has everything to do with Jesus and what he did and nothing to do with you or me. A third crown is the crown of rejoicing, or sometimes it's called the crowd of, crown of exaltation. That is, of exalting, of, of rejoicing. Paul asks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? And then he says to the Thessalonians, Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Who is my crown of rejoicing? It's you guys, Thessalonians. Paul said the Thessalonians were his crown of rejoicing. He had led them to the Lord. He had discipled them. He had taught them God's word. The crown of exaltation or the crown of rejoicing is reserved for those who have been instrumental instrumental building the life of Jesus Christ into other people, either through witnessing to them, leading to the Lord, They are those who have labored and sacrificed to build the life of Christ into other people. The popular Christian song, Thank You for Giving to the Lord, remember that song? That is the theological, the biblical truth behind that song. The song says, I dreamed I went to heaven and you were there with me. We walked upon the streets of gold beside the crystal sea. We heard the angels singing, then someone called your name. You turned and saw this young man, and he was smiling as he came. And he said, friend, you may not know me now. But then he said, but wait, you used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. And every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. And one day when you said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart, thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. Then another man stood before you and said, Remember the time a missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry. You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave. That's why I'm here today. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am so glad you gave. One by one they came, far as the eyes could see, each life somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices you made, they were unnoticed on the earth, in heaven, now proclaimed. Now I know that up in heaven you're not supposed to cry, but I'm almost sure there were tears in your eyes. As Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord, he said, my child, look around you. For great is your reward. The crown of exaltation. A fourth crown is the crown of glory. In the first letter of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, Peter wrote to the shepherds, the pastors of the flock of God, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
The crown of glory is that which is awarded to faithful, godly shepherds, to the pastors of the church. The question always comes up, if that's what the pastors get, what do the pastor's wives get? And I always say it's got to be a whole lot more <laughs> than the crown of glory. Whatever it is, it's even greater than that. And then the fifth crown mentioned in the Bible is the crown of life. The crown of life. Turn over to the book of Revelation for a moment. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Revelation chapter 2, page 1492. That's a familiar number in the, in the Bibles. In verse 8 of Revelation chapter 2, John is told to write to the suffering, persecuted church in Smyrna. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. In the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is reserved for those who have suffered or sacrificed in some great way for the cause of Jesus Christ because of their faith. It's for those who have given their life on account of their faith. It's for those who have suffered greatly because of their faith. Some have called it the martyr's crown, but it's not just for those who have died on account of their faith. It's for all those who have suffered because of their faith. And as we look around the world, in fact, the word martyr, marturian, just means witness. It's the witness crown. Those who have suffered because they were witnesses of Jesus Christ, and some have paid the ultimate suffering. As I was thinking about this this week, I was just thinking, you know, I, I don't know how God manufactures the crowns. <laughs> if he just does it with a word or whatever, of course he does it that way. But I just had to picture that because of what's going on in the Middle East today, heaven is working hard on these crowns, on these crowns. The imperishable crown, which Jesus will give to you based on what he did in and through you as you ran the race. The crown of righteousness, where you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The participation award. But what an award it is. The crown of rejoicing or exaltation that's awarded to those whom God used to build his life into others. The crown of glory that's given to God's faithful under-shepherds. The crown of life, which we would say those, because of their Christian faith, their faith in God, paid the ultimate sacrifice for the kingdom of God. But I want you to turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, a page or two over from where we are. Because I want to show you the most important part, the most exciting part. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Verse eight. That scene, the scene is that great worship scene in heaven. The angels are worshiping. The 24 elders who represent Israel and the church are worshiping. They are clothed in white garments and wearing Stephanos on their heads. There are flashes of thunder, lightning. There are peals of thunder. In other words, worship doesn't get any better than this. And we pick it up in the eighth verse of Revelation chapter 4. And the four living creatures, each of, the one, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And get this, and they will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. What are we going to do with our crowns? What are we going to do with that which God honored and gave to us? One day as representative by the 24 elders as an act of eternal worship, we will cast them at the feet of Jesus. What does this mean? For the 24 elders that are represented here, they had no preoccupation with their own excellence. Didn't come to thought anything that they had done. They had no concern about their own beauty, their own holiness that they're experiencing at that moment, their own honor, their own reward. That means nothing to them. They are so lost in adoration of the Savior. They have been to the Bema Seat judgment. They have received the rewards that the Lord was said was theirs that he would give to them at his appearing. They had received whatever's involved in the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of glory, the imperishable crown. They have received for the gold and silver precious stones of their life those fitting eternal rewards, and they wear those rewards like a crown. And then instantaneously, when the worship crescendo begins and the holy, holy is heard back and forth, holy, 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 and the church enters into the presence of the Lord, lost in love, lost in honor and wonder and praise, they divest themselves of all that honor and they cast it all at the feet of the king. In voluntary surrender, they join that crescendo of creation's redemption. Now that is something for each one of us to look forward to. Because each one of us who are in Jesus Christ will cast our crowns at his feet. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, it's just way beyond words and the beautiful descriptions that you have given us in your word, Father. Just give us just a glimpse of what that's going to be. But Father, I pray that as it sinks deep into our hearts and to our minds and into our spirits, that it would motivate our very souls to live for you, to live for all that that will bring honor and glory and worship to your name. Father, as we face things in this life and we are asked to run with endurance, Father, I just pray that you would keep that as a picture, that we'd keep fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our souls, in whose name we pray.
Amen.